zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Dragon Slayer, released June 26th, 1981. It was written by Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins, directed by Robbins, released by Paramount in the U.S. and Disney internationally. Writers Barwood and Robbins found their inspiration for the story in Disney's Fantasia, and specifically the Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence referenced in the film's dialogue. Sorcerer's Apprentice? They combined the heart of that story with the legend of St. George and the Dragon, the tale of a 4th century soldier from the Roman army who was enlisted by a town to slay the dragon they'd been making sacrifices to when a well-loved princess lost their annual lottery. That's a true story. (laughs) Barwood and Robbins set about telling this story with an emphasis on realism, and fewer of the standard medieval tropes like knights in shining armor. Magic is real, yes. Mm -hmm. Historically, they set their story after the Roman rule of Britain alongside the arrival of Christianity. Working titles included Dragon Slayer, two words, or The Dragon Slayer, not to be confused with Don Bluth's 1983 arcade game, Dragon's Lair. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It does bother me that it is one word because... When I do uh, voice commands to find the movie on our TV, right. it, it makes it two words yeah. and it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. A quarter of the budget went to the creation of the film's dragon, Vermithrax Pejorative, which translates as the worm of Thrace, which makes things worse. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's what that means. Pejorative is such a weird surname because it's mostly used as a regular word now. Yeah but that's what they went with. The incredible dragon prop represented the first feature film use of go motion, a sort of stop motion hybrid effect developed by Phil Tippett, which relied on the input of computer assisted puppeteering. The computer would move the model during the stop motion photography and then reset so that the desired frames would have a natural motion blur. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It looks great. For the full-size live-action puppet, dual World War II-era flamethrowers were installed to represent the dragon's That's fire breath. really awesome. <laughs> Sixteen puppets were employed to represent Vermithrax over the course of the production. In designing the creature, Barwood kept to certain evolutionary rules, including having Vermithrax move on all fours and basing the skeleton on the Jurassic pterosaur Rampharynchus. Guillermo del Toro counts Vermithrax among the best movie dragons up there with Maleficent in dragon form. Recurring Game of Thrones director Neil Marshall calls it the greatest screen dragon of all time, and sculptor Bill Basso drew inspiration from Vermithrax for his work on the 2002 dragon apocalypse film Reign of Fire. George R.R. Martin is such a fan that Vermithrax got a shout-out in the first season of Game of Thrones. There was Giska and Valryon. Vermithrax. Well, they also used Valerian in Game of Thrones. Is that something that exists I outside think, the, this universe? Either way, George R. R. Martin obviously took the name Tyrion from this also, or presumably did, so I wouldn't be surprised if 
he borrowed Valerian from this story too. This release was part of the same two-picture deal with Popeye that was financed jointly by Walt Disney and Paramount, who split the budget between them, with Paramount distributing domestically and Disney overseas, making this the first and presumably only Disney film to feature male nudity. Coincidentally, the West German distribution was handled by 20th Century Fox, who have since been acquired by Disney. Did I block out the male nudity? When he jumps into the water. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yep. you, you see his butt. Do you see his front? When he's under the water, yeah. Yeah. You also see some side boob. I was going to say, you see her from the side. I don't remember. I guess I wasn't paying enough attention. You clearly weren't. (laughs) (laughs) Eric Roberts was initially announced as the lead and later replaced by Peter McNichol. Dragon Slayer would find itself in the same Rolling Stones article, Big Bucks, Big Losers, that we've brought up a lot on the show. The film was nominated for two Oscars, visual effects and score, losing to Raiders and Chariots of Fire, respectively. So it was a loser? It did not make its money back, no. That's such a shame. It was a loss for both distributing companies. The film starts with a group carrying torches through the hills in early morning as they approach a castle. Inside, we see an old wizard, Ulrich, walk around his conjuring room reciting Latin incantations. He makes a fluttery gesture with his hands and turns off all his candles at once without touching one. He adds liquid and powder to a cauldron, while outside, the torchbearers enter the gates and move toward the castle door. In the conjuring room, Ulrich the wizard stares into his cauldron as animated flames lick up from the basin and light is projected in the man's face. Terrified screams can be heard, implying that he's seeing horrors from far away or perhaps the future. An old man named Hodge puts on a helmet and races to answer the knock at the door. He seems to predict the questions of their guests. Is this? Uh, yes, this is Cragamore, and yes, this is the house of Ulrich, and no, he won't see you. But I know you've come a long way. Your business is urgent. It doesn't matter. He sees no one. Please. Please yourself. Go home. He slams the window and the door in their face and sends them away. The boy leading the group, who we will come to know as Valerian, makes his demands known to the closed door, but the camera pulls back to reveal that Ulrich's apprentice, Galen, played by Peter McNichol, is listening. The group intends to stay put until they are granted conference with the wizard. Galen delivers their demands to Ulrich, who appears entranced, but when he wakes from his mini-coma, he knows exactly why they're here and readily invites them in. Hodge seems reluctant to let them in, but follows his instructions. Ulrich dresses in his finest wizardry, but dismisses the staff, not wanting to appear infirmed. I do like that his finest wizardry is like a funky snake hat that looks not real. Yeah, it's like a leather (laughs) cap with a leather snake wrapped around the brim. It kind of reminds me of like like the loungewear fez that John Carradine is often photographed in. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay. This is... But he also mentions that this is a robe from another wizard who died. Right. <laughs> I took it off the corpse of my other wizard friend. He tells Galen that this robe once belonged to Belisarius, the wizard he trained under. Belisarius was also a bit of an alchemist, capable of turning lead into gold, something Ulrich could never quite manage himself, which is the first hint we get that this story is meant to take place at the tail end of magic's grip on the world. The wizards of now never matched the powers of their masters, and Ulrich's apprentice seems even less equipped to follow in his footsteps. Ulrich asks if he still intends on a career of sorcery. Oh yes, more than anything. Ulrich tells him to collect a handful of sulfurous ash before they attend to their visitors. Galen steps through a door, plays a drum, and wobbles a saw blade to announce the arrival of his master. (laughs) It's all very like 20s radio. Yeah. I love it, though. It's 
and I this is my first time watching this movie, so like I didn't know what to expect mm-hmm. from this, and so I couldn't tell if magic was real or not in this movie. Yeah, at this I point. think they do a good job of keeping it hazy in the beginning for sure because they you know they're, it's really it's really cheesy entrance where you're just like okay so this guy's like a charlatan right and then uh you know and they're asking him for his help but it's not uh it's, it's not actually all that there there seems to be magic in this world yeah it's a mix for sure as ulrich passes through the same door galen pitches the ash to the floor igniting a cloud behind him ulrich recites latin phrases which conjure flames and all his candles and fireplaces the same words that I will eventually program our Google to respond to. Nunc hebeemus lucem. Sorry, I don't know how to help with that yet. <laughs> I was say, I'm never going to be able to turn the lights on in our house again. <laughs> even if you get the words right, probably. Those Googles are trashed. Ulrich asks for the one who calls himself Valerian to speak, a name which I don't think anyone said so far, so we might have gotten this information from his vision earlier. They try to explain their purpose, but Ulrich already knows it and asks for the artifacts they've brought to present to him. Valerian sets down a bag which slides across the table to Ulrich, containing a pair of dragon scales collected at the mouth of the dragon's lair. Next, Valerian presents what he thought was a claw. That's no claw by the gods. It's a tooth. Ulrich recommends a few alternative dragon slayers, but it seems they've all passed on. Like, ooh, that's much bigger than I thought. (laughs) Valerian spells out their specific problem. Twice a year for the spring and autumn equinox, their village makes a sacrifice by lottery to the dragon. And in return, this dragon, it leaves your villages and crops unburned. Valerian asks if he is afraid of dragons, and interestingly, he answers, No. In fact, if it weren't for sorcerers, there wouldn't be any dragon. Which I think implies one of two things, either that sorcerers literally conjured dragons into existence, or that they're opposite sides of a magic coin in the same way that people say there can be no light without darkness. Oh, you mean that, like, or like the Skeksis? Right, exactly. It makes sense then that as the last of the sorcerers fades from the world, he should encounter the last of the dragons, and they're yeah. both elderly. Ulrich can tell from the provided scales that this dragon is Vermithrax pejorative, an elderly and consequently very bitter dragon. They ask again if Ulrich will help, and he packs a bag to leave. Galen seems doubtful of his chances of success, warning him that the road is a hard one, but Ulrich, cradling the gemstone on a necklace, cryptically claims that he isn't worried about the road. When they open the gates, they're met by Tyrion, captain of the royal guard, sent by King Cassiodorus to investigate this contingent and their goals. Cassiodorus is worried that involving a sorcerer in their bargain with the dragon could spell doom for his kingdom, and Tyrion demands the right to test this wizard. Hodge and Galen refuse on Ulrich's behalf to subject him to a test. Tyrion is not surprised, as false wizards are loath of any test of their abilities. Ulrich is quickly bored with the argument and agrees to the test. He instructs Galen to take the necklace with the gem to the conjuring room and fetch a rusty dagger from a large chest. Galen brings it to a window overlooking the courtyard to verify. It's not this one, is it? The very one. Let it fall. Galen tosses the knife down, and it sticks into a board right beside Tyrion's hand. Ulrich plucks it from the wood and offers it to Tyrion, inviting him to plunge the blade into his chest. Ulrich recites another bit of Latin. Mortem confundit magus. Which loosely translated means, death is confused by magician. (laughs) From above, 
The purpose of this test has become clear to Galen, and he races to interrupt it, but all the doors of the conjuring room slam shut in his face. So at this point, like, I was thinking that the gem itself or the crystal, uh, like, was the only thing that had the power, but he clearly has power outside of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because he's closing these doors around Without it. it. Yeah. When Tyrion finally stabs him with the dagger, Ulrich collapses and dies in the dirt. Tyrion, annoyed at the waste of time, drops the dagger on the dead old man's back and wanders back through the gate, having dispatched the last supernatural hope of defeating this beast. And when we see the journey back, this, it makes you realize how just kind of petty this whole, tra- like that he traveled all of this way. Just to kill a wizard. Just to kill around. the wizard and turn around and go back. Yeah. Well, was he traveling with them? No, no he was following So he was them. just following them. Yeah. To be like, this isn't going to work, guys. Yeah. Like, that's it? Yep. (laughs) Time well spent away from the kingdom. Upstairs in the conjuring room, Galen has fallen to the floor and all the doors slowly open around him. That night, Ulrich's body is burned in front of their visitors and the flame is bright green. I'm not sure why they're all still here, but yeah, I feel like you would have turned around as soon as that wizard hit the floor. (laughs) I guess guess out of respect, it's like, we did come all this way and we kind of got him killed. (laughs) It seemed like he was volunteering for it. He told the guy to stab him. We might as well get the extra mileage of following Tyrion and just riding in his wake. They thought there was going to be food at the funeral. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I guess this is it, huh? Just, Just the dead guy, okay. Was it the, the funeral meats did coldly furnish the wedding table? <laughs> <laughs> Shooting stars pass overhead as we dip to black on the green flame, and the next morning Hodge is scooping up Ulrich's ashes with a spoon. Tidying up the conjuring room, Galen tries on the snake hat and looks at himself in the mirror. He moves his hand, emulating one of Ulrich's gestures, and the keyhole of a metal chest begins to glow. As he throws a blanket over Ulrich's equipment, he notices the necklace, and places it in the formerly glowing metal chest, which he tops with a large rock. Seconds later, he sees the necklace again, this time hanging upside down in a glass bulb and glowing. The second appearance of this necklace gets Galen's attention, and he calls to Hodge. He breaks the bulb to retrieve the gem, and we cut to Galen and Hodge on the road together. As he walks, Galen levitates a spinning egg in the air six inches above the palm of his hand. Hodge tells Galen he's got a long way to go before he'll reach Ulrich's powers, and in response, Galen plays a trick on him, levitating his backpack from his shoulders and stripping him of his clothes. That's the first trick I would learn as an apprentice wizard. <laughs> when Hodge accuses him of not respecting his master, Galen claims he is the master now. Only the master of evil, Darth. No. What? Nope. <laughs> What's that from? <laughs> Could be any Darth. What's it from? Hey, oh, it's from Star Wars. Oh, okay. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> He claps his hands and Hodge is reclothed as his backpack falls to the ground. We cut through the woods to the camp of the travelers. Among them, an angry villager named Grail is complaining about what has been a huge waste of time. Valerian admits fault when suddenly their campfire is magically extinguished and they call to the woods around them. What is it? Who's there? Galen and Hodge appear in another flash of sparks. Galen immediately offers his own services in place of the deceased Ulrichs. Even Hodge thinks he's overpromising to these people. We cut to the lair of the dragon, where this Equinox's virgin is being led to her fate. A horse is pulling the sacrifice along to where they are headed and freaking out. The girl is walked the last 100 feet to the totem pole, where she is to be chained up with a hood over her head. A religious leader we will come to know as Horserick 
raises a contract beside the sacrifice, and heavy growls emanate from the lair. The rest of the men run for cover while he reads. The woman struggles to free herself, squeezing her hands as tightly together as she can to pull them through the cuffs holding her in place. Eventually, her wrists are bleeding as smoke begins to pour out of the cave entrance. I'm wondering why she's struggling and pulling down when I would be trying to climb up the pole to because she's literally hanging like by these chains yeah. between her hands. I'm like, you just get them up over the hook and run off as opposed to like yeah. breaking your wrists to try to pull them out. Yeah. She manages to get one hand free just as the dragon's claw rises from its home. She locks eyes with the beast and it barks at her in a mix of animal sounds quite comparable to those later used in Jurassic Park. Amazingly, she gets the second hand free too, but it's too late. She runs full speed from the monster, but its foot drops in a puddle before her, and it catches up with her at every turn. It blocks her path with a spiked tail and smashes the wagon she was brought here on, freeing the attached horse. The dragon corners her against a stone wall. The sound of a grand inhaling can be heard, followed by a tremendous fireball, which cooks the girl in place. As she screams, Valerian sits up in their camp, possibly having dreamt the sacrifice. Valerian moves to a nearby pond to bathe. Back at the camp, Galen argues a bit with Hodge before heading to the swimming hole himself. Valerian notices him at the edge of the water and begs him not to come in, but Galen ignores the warning and dives in fully nude. He swims right up to Valerian before noticing underwater that she is a woman posing as a man. Now, did either of you call that? Yes. Because I, I know you hadn't seen this film before. Yeah, I hadn't uh, seen it. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that I was questioning this character, mm-hmm. but, you know, like, I, I wasn't sure why. <laughs> I mean, especially when you see her in the water saying, no, 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 don't come in here. Yeah. Like, it's definitely a, a Mulan moment, but yeah, I think even at the door, I was kind of like, okay, mm-hmm. I don't know why this woman is dressed that way, but that's clearly a woman. Yeah. Uh, it's One of my biggest pet peeves is the clearly a woman pretending to be a boy but everyone doesn't seem to see it although i have to say that unlike other instances i was impressed by the the voice that she was doing Mm -hmm. because it sounded like you could mistake it for a boy's voice yeah like a like a young boy going through puberty yeah i think pitch black was the most egregious (laughs) (laughs) i was like wait she wasn't a girl (laughs) (laughs) you guys didn't know that what about um the only time that uh, you would be fooled by this. Your, or at least your niece was fooled by it. By a, a caddyshack. Yeah. When they one of the caddies takes off. And that's a girl. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I forgot all about that. <laughs> <laughs> Back at camp, Tyrion is spying on the group and sees Hodge among the campers. He asks for his bow, assuming Hodge is Ulrich's replacement and intending to put an end to their mission. As they redress after swimming, it finally occurs to Galen why Valerian has kept her sex secret. Only daughters are chosen by the lottery, and so by posing as a son, she has evaded contention, a luxury afforded only to her and the daughter of the king, who has happily bought her way out of the lottery each year. Or maybe just commanded her way out of the lottery. I don't think he's paying money for it. I mean, she's The implication, though, is that she's not the only one. No, it's other, not, other rich people. Other rich people's daughters right, are also right. not in contention. But, but Valerian is the only poor person who's getting away with it yeah. because she's posing as a boy. So I don't understand Tyrion's motivation here. He doesn't want a wizard to interrupt their deal with the dragon and spell doom for the kingdom. So he's here on the king's command 
to kill anyone who tries to screw up the system that works. He doesn't have a daughter to worry about, and the king doesn't have a daughter to worry about because his daughter's not in contention. So they just want to protect the system as it works now. Okay. The, the fear being that if they try and fail, then the dragon Things will get pissed. Yeah, and the, the king worse. explains later that the dragon holds a grudge and remembers attacks against it. Yeah. And so they could get a much worse deal out of it if they don't just keep things going. Got it. After she walks away, Galen takes a moment to stare into the pond and has a premonition. He sees the royal guards riding on horseback and Tyrion with a bow and arrow. He races back to camp, hoping to prevent the prediction, but he finds Hodge too late. He already has an arrow in his belly and collapses on the path. Somebody shot me, but I can still talk. (laughs) Galen, can you hear me? (laughs) (laughs) He tells Galen that it's important that he bring the master's ashes on this adventure and toss them into burning water. Galen tries fruitlessly to cast resurrection spells, but they don't help Hodge, and he dies here. The next day, the whole group ride a boat across a body of water. They anchor it to a stone on the shores of their home of Erland. Again, the group are spotted by the royal guard as they move through the mountains and pass the dragon's lair, which seems to be found near a volcano since the rocks in the area are all obsidian. But Unless this, dragon's well, fire is yeah, doing this to the rocks. That, that's what I assume the yeah. implication is. Yeah. That he's literally melting rocks with his breath. That's yeah. yeah, he's just like just torching it just so like kind of like marking your territory. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I feel like I, I keep noticing so many things that are reminding me of Game of Thrones too because they have obsidian and they call it dragon glass because yeah. it's, you know, melted by dragons, right? That makes sense. When Galen learns they are close to the lair, he demands to see it. Unclear why Galen is so eager to tempt fate and see the lair or perhaps the dragon in person. Like, he seemed like a scared guy at the beginning of the movie. Mm. And as soon as he gave him this rock necklace, he's like, I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing. Well, I I think that he's feeling a little full of himself. Yeah. But I also like that this is the not titular dragon's lair of dragon slayer. Right, yeah. But I I hear you on on sort of like the, the turn on his attitude because he does seem at the beginning of the film unsure of himself. And then yeah. it's not like he had a success that he, that he's now overly confident. Unless you consider successful. the floating egg to be a success. But like when Frodo gets the ring, he's not immediately like, oh, I'm the shit, man. I mm-hmm. should be in charge of this thing. The whole time he's like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why. Like it just seems like a weird turn yeah. on the character. He finds the handcuffs used to hold the sacrifice in place still chained to the post. At the mouth of the cave, Galen asks if there's more than one entrance, but they claim that this is it, even though it looks too small for the dragon. Galen descends into the cave through piles of human rib cages. He finds a scale on the ground and hears the rumbling of the dragon below him. At this point, I thought, like, do these wizards have, like, a deal with the dragons? And yeah. he's just about to, like, go meet with them and be like, hey, I got to tell these people I killed you. Is that cool? <laughs> Is it going to be, like, dr- like dragon heart? Yeah. <laughs> you just got to, like, fake these people out. Or, or the reluctant dragon. Yeah. But, uh, but no, he's just exploring in this dragon cave like he's wearing an invincibility cloak. When all he has is like a nice necklace. I mean, it's nice. A thick cloud of smoke is burped through the chamber and Galen retreats from the lair. He stands on a platform and recites an incantation with a hand raised toward the cave. His words seem to trigger an avalanche of rock, which buries the lair entrance. The rest of the group run for cover from the falling rocks, and at the end everyone seems safe and the dragon appears confined to the lair. We cut to the celebrating village where straw dragons are burned in effigy as people rejoice. In her home... Valerian holds a dress to her chest and observes herself in a mirror. Her father walks in and demands she hide the dress. 
still chained to the habit of keeping her secret. What if you were seen? The question has some important implications. First of all, there is no dragon, so there's no risk of her being sacrificed, assuming that it's been killed in this right, avalanche. Right. However, she would still be revealing her secret to a town full of people who'd sacrificed their daughters. And they would all know that she and her father had cheated the system and that one of their children might have taken her place over the years. Yeah. She decides to reveal her truth to the crowd and a hush falls over the celebration. Galen approaches, drags her to the dance floor, and calls for a song. After an awkward pause, others from the crowd join them in dance and the discomfort is quickly over. Valerian's father weirdly brags to Grail about his whole scheme, and it almost sounds to me like Grail had lost a daughter to the lottery. Yeah, he, he, he says something along, I wish I had been that clever as a father. Would that I was as clever as a father. Come on, Grail. Don't begrudge a life spared. But that's not really what happened here. No life was spared mm. because they haven't missed a sacrifice yet. A life was merely substituted for Valerian's. And then I also like how Grail immediately like changes gears. It's like, did you happen to notice that the rock slide happened the same time that there was a holy man in the village? Right, like, exactly. Well, you just saw a guy do it. Yeah. <laughs> he was standing there reciting incantations at the mouth of the cave when yeah. it happened. Grail is still fascinated by what they've witnessed and wonders if it wasn't just as likely the work of the holy man. I think it's weird to mention him before we've seen this priest, but it follows logically that as magic should disappear from the world, it would be replaced by religious belief. And the character that spots it is Grail. Yeah. <laughs> Later we see Grail speaking with the holy man, played by Ian McDiarmid, and the holy man is quick to give God credit for the avalanche. Yeah. He's like, oh yeah, he does stuff like that all the time. That was probably him. It, this this story kind of parallels uh, Excalibur. Yeah, a there's a bit. lot in common, and they take place around the same time, yeah. too. It, 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 the, the sense of Merlin says the one god chases away the many gods, right. and, and magic is fading. And yeah. That's what the, the sign of the times. The party comes to another screeching halt when the royal guard arrive. Tyrion says he's here to bring Galen to the king. Galen is hesitant to follow this man, who in the last week has killed his master Ulrich and friend Hodge. Regardless, Galen is brought before the king where he performs a bit of a half-assed magic show. <laughs> He's like, look at this a chicken on a table and watch, I'll make the table fly. So his last trick is to make this table float in the air. The king notices that Galen is gripping the gemstone necklace through his shirt. Instead of flying, the table simply tips over, probably because of the interference of the shirt mm -hmm. fabric. The king explains his reasoning for sending out the guard to dispatch all wizards. When he was young, his brother led an attack on the dragon, for which the dragon has been responding for many years. The king wants to know who invited him here to potentially make matters worse by infuriating this beast. The king reaches into Galen's shirt and steals the necklace. The king has no problem with the system in place, but Galen won't stand for it. But your children were dying! Only a few. Does that sound cruel? It is better that they should die than others might live. The king takes credit for inventing the lottery, which has protected their town for years. Galen claims the lottery is no longer necessary as he has killed the dragon, which I think is going overboard. Just say you've trapped it because yeah. you know you didn't kill it. It was way deep in this hole. Up in the hills, it rains on the rock slide and the stones begin to steam. We cut to Galen in a dungeon cell where he uses Latin words in an attempt to break the bars off his window. Galen is inexplicably visited by Princess Elspeth, who is educated enough to understand his Latin spells. Elspeth tries to convince Galen that her father is right and the lottery is a necessary evil. Galen informs her, for apparently the first time, that she was never really included in the lottery. When she denies his claim, he tells her there's no need to lie here. 
because everyone knows what he says is true. Never really backs this up, but she just no. takes his word for it. Yeah. yeah, and then she tries to confirm it and still doesn't get a confirmation. Well, I, I think it was enough that it planted the seed of doubt. Yeah. Yeah. She leaves to consult with her father, while back at the lair, the ground rumbles more and the faint roar of a dragon can be heard. Back in Cassiodorus's chambers, he and his vizier, Horsrick, are playing Jenga with lead bars. <laughs> <laughs> Evidently, they're trying their hands at alchemy, but it is not working. I like I like it says it's not working. Let's let's just try it one at a time. Yeah. Like he was trying to do all the bars at once. Yeah. The king has in his grip the necklace stolen from Galen, and as he requests the lead to be turned to gold, it heats up and burns his hand. And it looks like a pretty fucking bad burn. Like yeah. it's a huge square that's like a half inch deep in his hand. He drops the necklace immediately. Elspeth confronts her father with the rumors and doesn't believe his denial. So he tells her, no, that's not true. You've been in every... And she's like, oh my God, I haven't been in every one of them. Oh, he goes, he goes, no. Wait, I mean, yes. Yeah. I meant no meaning yes. No meaning yes. <laughs> Galen awakens in his cell to what sounds like a riot outside. Princess Elspeth returns to release him from his cell as repayment for the information about her father. Galen manages to sneak out of the jail, past Tyrion, and steals a horse from a guard. He rides the horse through a set of double doors, down a hallway, directly into the king's chambers. When he's quickly surrounded by guards, the shaking of the castle tears down the exterior wall, and Galen rides his horse through the new opening. Also, it seems like a really bad castle design that the king's chambers is- on the outside. (laughs) On the outside. You could, like, just use a log to punch a hole in it and kill the king. It doesn't seem super sturdy. A little shaking took down a wall. Yeah. The shot of him jumping the horse through the hole and out onto these pristine hills is actually incredibly beautiful. Like, the, it's such a well-shot nature scene. I mean, that, I think that's true about a lot of this film. Yeah, I'm it's really like, well-photographed. It's really lovely. Yeah. That night, the holy man leads a group to the dragon's lair to show them the power of the Christian god. He claims that Vermithrax isn't a dragon, but the devil himself. The ground starts erupting around them, and people fall to the steaming rocks. A large tree is upended, and nearly crushes the priest, but before he can crawl out from under it, he hears the dragon approaching. He crawls over to the edge of the dragon's pit and sees it rising in smoke. Unfortunately, the priest doesn't recognize the monster's signature inhaling sound mm-hmm. and is blasted unexpectedly with a wall of fire. In a flash, the priest is replaced with a charred corpse with no hair or facial features. Yeah, it it's pretty frightening like like maybe like five or six frames yeah. of just like oh <laughs> just just perfectly bald round head yeah. because it just scarred all, all the skin off of him it it, it, it kind of reminds me of when uh yeah koto shoots the flamethrower at uh ian holm in alien right. yeah where like you just like the skin melting off the weird doll face yep creepy which is good because this is the same dp yeah I wonder if he just used that stuff from Alien. I wonder if that was from Alien. It's the same prop, you think? <laughs> just put a new layer of skin on. Mm-hmm. Galen returns to the village just in time to see it attacked by the dragon. Vermithrax is just burninating the shit out of this place. The next day, the royal guard come to Valerian's father's blacksmith shop in search of Galen. They don't find him, but Tyrion tells Valerian's father, who I don't know if they mentioned in the movie, but his name is Simon. Uh, I don't think they say his name in the film, but... He's not even credited as Simon. Yeah. He's credited as Valerian's father. Oh, okay. Well, the the character's name is Simon based on the novelization. Oh, okay. But it's Simon Valerian? I assume Valerian is their last name? I don't know. I think Valerian is her first name. Is that her first name? Yeah. 
because he's credited as Valerian's father. He can't be his own father. <laughs> well, but that that character only ever had right. a oh, I get single it. name. No, you're making sense. I'm not. They don't find him, but Tyrion tells Valerian's father, Simon, that the king has called for a new lottery to appease the dragon and that his newly revealed daughter is eligible for inclusion. After the guards leave, Valerian and her father tip a large anvil on one side, revealing a hole in the floor where Galen has stowed away. Galen has one more request of Simon. Blacksmith, have you ever forged a weapon? This, I imagine, because the entire time that they were looking for Galen, like, he's hammering away on this anvil, mm-hmm. and so I'm like, that must be so loud underneath this oh my God, hole. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. gotta be deafening. Yeah. We cut to the blacksmith reeling in a huge metal spear, which has been cooling in a waterfall. He calls it Sicarius Draconum, or the Dragon Slayer, which is, I think, what the title comes from, unless it's something later. Back in his shop, he shows how sharp it is by dragging a horseshoe across the blade and slicing a sliver away like it was hot butter. Well, this makes sense to me, though, if this is the, where the concept of Valerian steel came from. Right, yeah. Like, if this is the, the best yep. that could be, the sharpest. At night, the entire village is present for the lottery outside the king's castle. Valerian is kept in a roped-off section of the courtyard with all the other contenders. She notices that Galen is watching the princess and mistakes his gratitude for a romantic interest. All the tiles are added to a large cauldron and stirred. I, I really like how the crowd is just like, already kind of like they're aware of the whole procedure and they have yeah. like a whole like a ritual that they do stir the tiles yeah and they're all shouting it together name. when the time comes for the vizier horse rick to choose a name he is hesitant to read it before the crowd he waits for the king to gesture before announcing the name is princess elspeth ulfilas <laughs> the king realizes what his daughter has done and stands to correct the mistake, but the crowd is not having it. The king claims the tile is illegible and offers to draw a second one, but this one too carries his daughter's name. Elspeth has made the ultimate sacrifice and included only her name in the drawing, instantly making her the most selfless character in the entire film. Mm -hmm. In the crowd, Valerian seems moved by what the princess has done, but never bothers to redress her own avoidance of the same lottery. During the princess's address to the public, Galen sneaks into the castle to retrieve the magic necklace. Right outside the king's chambers, the king asks Tyrion to do something about this to save his daughter out of loyalty to the kingdom, and Tyrion points out that if he was truly loyal to the kingdom, he would uphold the rules of the lottery. Yep, Tyrion is lawful evil. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Galen is caught in the king's chambers but not killed because now the king needs a sorcerer to defeat the dragon before it eats his daughter. Suddenly, he's sucking up to Galen before asking the favor. Mm-hmm. I've always had the greatest admiration for the black arts, you chaps with your mysterious spells. <laughs> the king removes the necklace from around his own neck and sets it on the table between them, and the gemstone crawls across the table to where Galen picks it up and watches it glow. Presumably, this shot is happening in reverse, but the blocking is smart, so it looks like the actors are moving forward in time. Yeah, I, I really paid attention, though, to see if it was in reverse, and it really doesn't look it. So yeah. it's, it's an impressive shot, uh, or or they're pushing it across the table. I, Somehow, yeah. yeah. Well, I just figured it was a magnet underneath the table. Oh, yeah, there you Could go. Could be that, yeah. Back at the blacksmith shop, Galen makes plans to defeat the dragon and rescue the princess, and Valerian seems jealous of the attention. Galen requires extreme heat to prepare his weapon, and when the blacksmith can't provide it, he uses a spell which causes the tip of the dragon slayer spear to glow red and then white. I love the sound effect here, too, of the mm-hmm. thing slowly heating up. 
Like the metal like screeching from the sudden change. Yeah. It almost reminds me of the metallic scratching sound at the start of Texas Chainsaw Massacre when you hear the photos being taken during the, the opening scene. The blacksmith goes to work tempering the white hot spear and Valerian dips out the back door with a woven basket to go about collecting dragon scales in the mountains. She ventures perilously close to the dragon's lair, even encountering some of its younglings, one of which nearly grabs her by the arm. As we cut back to the blacksmith shop, the spear is now sharp enough to slice off the end of the anvil with a light tap. As Galen heads to the lair on foot, Valerian tosses him a shield that she has sewn together from a few dozen dragon scale. She warns him about the dragon babies, and he makes a note that all must be killed. Lastly, she asks if he's in love, and he admits he is. She guesses out loud that he's referring to the princess, but propositions him anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to me, Galen Bradwarden, sorcerer's apprentice. You're going to be dead. The dragon will be worse than ever. There will be more lotteries. And I'm not a boy anymore. And you'll be eligible. Because, because I'm still a virgin. Galen sits beside her and confesses that she is the one he loves, not the princess. They kiss. But for whatever reason, Galen refrains from adding the secret ingredient that the dragon is allergic to. <laughs> <laughs> well, it kind of makes me wonder why they didn't go to this solution previously. Mm -hmm. Like, well, It seems easier than dressing her up like a boy every day. Like, <laughs> how, how sad do you have to be if you're one of the guys in the town? It's like, hey, do you want to... Do you want to have sex? And they're like, nah, it's cool. Well, you might, you might get eaten by that dragon, though. Yeah, I, I'm not really. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> There's a lot of girls in this town. <laughs> a wooden post is erected outside the dragon's lair, and the princess is dressed in the... <laughs> what? Sorry. <laughs> you children. A wooden post is erected outside the dragon's lair, and the princess is dressed in the sacrificial garb. Horse Rick begins reading out the contract of the sacrifice to the dragon, which I guess has to be reread verbally yeah. each time. But he, the, scroll, the dragon insists on it. Yeah. And he's like, I, I want to see like a shot of the dragon just like with one claw on his own page underground. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that's right. Oh, he skipped a claw. With, with a pair of like a little claws. spectacles. Like yeah. little, little spectacles <laughs> while he's Oh my God, that would be so cute. Here's my red lined version. I yeah. Sign in return, please. Perfect. <laughs> But the scroll that Horserick is reading from spontaneously combusts in his hands. Galen appears in a puff of smoke between the princess and Horserick, and the soldiers retreat except for Tyrion, who stays behind. He is here to defend the sacrifice that will protect his village. The two start crashing their weapons together, and amazingly Tyrion's blade isn't sliced in half on the first swing. Whenever the weapons collide, bright blue sparks are tossed from the point of the intersection like in a lightsaber battle. The ground begins to shake as the dragon approaches. Galen uses his spear to cut the chains holding the princess in place, and he tells her to run, but instead of leaving, she walks directly into the lair because she cares more about her people than about herself. Tyrion stands behind the sacrificial post and taunts Galen, who rams his spear through the post and into Tyrion's chest. They can both hear the princess screaming in the pit behind them, and when Tyrion dies, Galen follows her into the pit, but the screaming has stopped. When he finds her, 
she is already dead and being gnawed on by two dragon babies. Oh, my God. I was not expecting no. this. I did not think she was going to die after all that. No. And then after that, I didn't expect this, babies. which is that he spears <laughs> one of the babies in the throat while the oh other one God. tears off the princess's foot. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just that like, that oh, is, my God. This is insane. It's, it's both disturbing and awesome. Yeah. I think <laughs> they, they said, like, the first models that they put together for the dragon babies, like, the eyes... They were were too, too big, cute. and it was like this is these are adorable. We need to make these little beady, <laughs> terrifying. Well, eyes. they didn't fully succeed on turning still me against the cute. babies. Yeah. <laughs> Galen swings his blade across and takes the head off of the foot eater. A third baby surprises Galen from behind a rock, and he bashes it to death with a torch. <laughs> oh, I was not expecting this end for the princess, because we'd revealed her as the best person in the movie, yeah. and she just got her dead foot ripped off by a Muppet. <laughs> Deep in the cave, Galen finds an entire lake actively burning. Something large moves through the surface of the water. Galen almost slips in, but catches himself. He hops from rock to rock to the center of the lake of fire. As he surveys the room, the dragon appears from the water behind him. I like that every shot that we've basically seen thus far of the dragon has sort of been obscured. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. like as yeah. it comes out of like the like the the crevice with the the priest and stuff, like smoke in front of it or a person. Well, in front Well, there's of been it. a person in front of it, or like we just saw a claw reach out and get the original sacrifice, and so like we are you know over an hour into this movie well way past halfway and we still have yet to fully see a dragon right and and sometimes when that's happening you think it's because this dragon looks like shit huh and it's not the reason no (laughs) they've just built uh, this amount of suspense and i feel like it's a similar thing to like jurassic park it's just like you you build this world where you absolutely believe this thing is real but you don't have to see it to be terrified of it yeah because like they say there's only 13 minutes or something like that of dinosaur footage in jurassic park or even jaws yeah exactly well that was also because of technical difficulties but it ended up serving the film really well At the last second, Galen notices the dragon's reflection in the water, and he holds his shield to block the dragon's fiery breath. Is it a reflection or is it a vision? I don't know. Because the reflection wouldn't wouldn't If it's a reflection, then it has the Friday the 13th problem, which is that you can't see Jason's mom sneaking up on you with a knife if you're looking at a lake surface. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It must have been a vision because he had a vision earlier looking in water. So that must be what's going on here. Frustrated by the shield, the dragon blasts his fire into the cave ceiling, and Galen takes advantage of the moment by sneaking away beyond the dragon's reach. The dragon chases him out of the cave and up to the corpses of its babies. When it's, when it's stomping through the cave, it looks so great. Right, when it's moving through this tunnel after yeah. him. Yeah. And I think the motion blur really sells this stop motion. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. I still wish we had at least one test shot of Jurassic Park dinosaurs in stop motion. Cause I really think, cause it would have been Phil Tippett and mm-hmm. he would have been using go motion for sure. Yeah. I think it could have looked incredible. I mean, I love what we got, you know, I think ILM did a fantastic job with the CG dinosaurs, but I would still just so much love to see one stop motion shot for that movie. The dragon stops to nudge one of its baby's corpses with its nose and determines that its entire brood have been slaughtered. It lets out a scream and continues following Galen. Yeah, this got me. So, like, I feel like, obviously, they made them less cute, but this still was, like, heart-wrenching for yeah. me to, like, see the mama, see her babies all dead. And, and she like, rolls one a little bit, and then it just kind of falls back down. And, like, that scream. Yeah, just, like, it's guttural. It's awful. 
The dragon notices Galen's shield on the ground and approaches to investigate when Galen appears on a ledge above the dragon with his spear. He jumps down onto the dragon's neck and stabs it through the back of the dragon's head multiple times. I, I thought for sure, and again, I've seen this movie many times, but I thought for sure he was going to jump with the spear down. Down. Yeah. And I was like, oh, he doesn't do that? Yeah, okay. instead he jumps on and then starts poking at it. Yeah, he got to ground pound him. <laughs> Eventually, he lodges the spear in the dragon's throat, and it swings him all over the cave until the wooden handle breaks off of the weapon. Now, this shot of the dragon swinging him around, I feel like even that is so well done mm-hmm. that I, it doesn't look like a model is no. hanging from this dragon. It looks like you actually have Galen in the shot swinging all over the place. Above ground, Valerian searches for Galen and finds his shield, charred white, and the splintered wooden handle of his weapon. Then she finds Galen unconscious on the ground and rolls him over where he tells her that the dragon still lives. Back at the blacksmith shop, her father tosses the wooden handle into his fireplace and she treats his wounds, begging Galen to leave town with her and to put this dragon in their rear view. I don't understand how if the dragon still lives, how he still lives. Like yeah. if that thing wasn't dead, I'd be ripping this thing, you know, ripping this guy that killed my babies, you know, limb from limb. Because obviously it can get out of the lair yeah. from where it is. So why did it just let him climb up to the top and then wait for him? Yeah. Even Valerian's father agrees that escape is the ideal move. He also takes the opportunity to spell out some of the film's overarching themes. You know what I think? Magic. Magicians. It's all fading from the world. Dying out. That makes me happy. That means the dragon will be dying too. Before they leave, Valerian gifts his daughter a crucifix on a necklace, evidently having taken stock in some of the words of their barbecued holy man. On their way out of town, Galen and Valerian witness a solar eclipse. When Galen looks down at the reflection of the sun and a nearby lake, he suddenly remembers Hodge's final words about the burning water. He was meant to dispose of Ulrich's ashes in the fiery lake of the dragon's lair. Galen is at once relieved and annoyed that Ulrich seemed to have this all planned from the beginning. Especially when you could have just said, take it to the dragon's lair, throw it yeah. in the water. You would have saved a lot of time if you did this from the beginning. Well, and they also make reference to that he was a necromancer. Right. And it's like, oh, okay. So, you know, it's these resurrection things. Grail, who had put the most faith in the holy man before his untimely death, seems to have taken over leading the Christian church in town. Galen and Valerian enter the dragon's lair together with the wizard's ashes in tow. For some reason, they split up and Galen lets her take the torch. She quickly stumbles across the corpse of the princess and turns to rejoin Galen. Galen now stands in the center of the lake of fire with a satchel of Ulrich ash, apparently mixed with a great deal of glitter. (laughs) (laughs) That's what magicians look like when they burn. That's true, okay. Just glitter. The flames of the lake die down to nothing and the room is dark and quiet for a moment. It's a very, it's a great contrast from like the flame lit cavern to this kind of like eerie dark. And it's, it's clearly the same set, just you yeah. turned off all the pyrotechnics everywhere. Yeah. The gemstone necklace begins to glow green as do a pack of bubbles on the surface of the water. Suddenly green flames emerge in a tornado above the lake and the shape of a man is conjured inside the flame. And eventually Ulrich with a full headdress and staff floats out of the fire to rest a hand on Galen's shoulder. You're back. I thank the powers that made me. Glad to see you too. Amusingly, Ulrich's first request is for food. <laughs> Galen didn't bring anything. <laughs> he was like, I'm starving. It's been days since I ate. Galen confesses to Ulrich that he is no sorcerer. 
Back at the village church, everyone is being baptized, including the blacksmith. Valerian spots Vermithrax high on a mountain perch. Galen and Ulrich exit the lair together. Vermithrax is preceded by her dragon score and perches on a nearby peak. Valerian moves around the sacrifice area with a torch and finds Galen, who introduces her to Ulrich, who points out that they've already met. I know, I remember. The girl who came to us as a boy. Ulrich presents his plan. Galen is intended to destroy the amulet, which is his name for the gemstone on the necklace. He also claims that by destroying the necklace, he will be killing Ulrich once again. The moon completely blocks out the sun, and Ulrich teleports to the rock the dragon was perched on under a meteor shower and shouts to the heavens. He summons storm clouds and lightning strikes. If you could teleport, why didn't you just do that? Yeah, <laughs> teleport up to that dragon, jerk. Galen and Valerian watch the scene from a nearby peak. Ulrich lifts his hands and freezes the clouds in place. The dragon swoops low over the sorcerer once and then swings back over him a little bit lower. Just before the third pass, Valerian prepares a stone for Galen to smash the amulet with. The dragon is struck by lightning twice in her third attempt and slashes open Ulrich's shoulder with a claw. When Ulrich stands back up, he is hit with a blast of fire that seems to have no effect. Valerian wrestles the amulet away and prepares to smash it herself, but Galen insists it's not the proper time. I, I like Ulrich, like, after he's done being on fire, his staff is on fire, and he, he just kind of goes, <laughs> He just throws it on the ground. <laughs> on her fourth and final pass, Vermithrax snatches Ulrich from the rocks and carries him into the sky, at which point Galen decides the time is right and smashes the amulet, causing Ulrich to explode like a bomb, <laughs> taking the dragon down with him. Vermithrax plummets from the sky, smashing down in a nearby lake, which glitters with sparks in her wake. The sun reappears from behind the moon, and we jump forward hours to the smoldering corpse of the dragon, entrails all strewn about, and the people of Erland arrive upon the scene, and Grail thanks the lord for <laughs> freeing them from this dragon's tyranny. Then, the king arrives, and places a sword in the dead dragon, at which point Horserick pronounces him the official dragon slayer. <laughs> so God and the king have both taken credit away from the humble yeah. dragon slayer. I, I was watching with this with my niece. <laughs> when, she, when that king comes up, comes up and does that, and they, they say that, and she goes, what? <laughs> like, they're all standing there. They can see that you just put that sword in. But also, the king just looks so dead inside. Yeah. Like, he's just lost his daughter, and, like, they just told him, go out and But he this. looked like that before, too. Yeah, that's true. He looked heavily medicated Does the entire time. Does he even know that she's dead at this point? Maybe not. I don't know. He doesn't come to the sacrifices, even when it's his own daughter. If he did, he could have stopped her. Galen doesn't care to receive any credit, and as he and Valerian walk back to her village, Galen wishes that at least they had a horse, at which point, the horse from the first sacrifice reappears over a hill as if by magic. Uh, that was also a scene that with my niece, it goes, oh, so, so he does have magic. And I said, well, technically that could be the horse from the earlier scene. Right. Or it could be magic. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the point is supposed to be open-ended. Yes. Galen is stunned to laughter and they both ride the horse off to the horizon. That's the end of the film. Um, I'm going to fill in a few details from the novelization by Wayland Drews, which, uh, came out after the film, obviously. Uh, Galen has a sister named Apulia. 
He was left with Ulrich by his parents as an infant because he displayed an early adeptness with magic, but he was a bit ADHD and he often fucked up spells, which concerned Ulrich. <laughs> According to the novel, Galen was the apprentice of Ulrich, who was the apprentice of Belisarius, who was the apprentice of Pleximus. I think it's terrifying to imagine a toddler with a an affinity right? for magic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a nightmare. <laughs> It's like that Twilight Zone where you suddenly turn into a jack-in-the-box or something. In the book, Ulrich's vision at the start of the film taught him that a sorcerer created the first dragons and that that same sorcerer forged the amulet. The book also explains that Valerian's mother was sacrificed, which I guess means that it's not always virgins. Uh, Very few virgin mothers, but that's (laughs) that's where her mom went. Very few. (laughs) One I can think of off the top of my head. Her father is Simon and used to be the greatest weapons builder, but after dragons killed so many of his customers, he switched to making exclusively armor because he thought it reflected poorly on him that they didn't survive these fights. Historically, it is also revealed that the king, Cassiodorus, is of Roman descent, a holdover from the previous occupiers of this land, and as such looks down on his people as a sort of subspecies. In the book, when Ulrich is naming other dragon slayers they should check in with, he mentions Prospero, from Shakespeare's The Tempest, meaning that this film is a part of the Shakespearean cinematic universe, Uh. which is not at all how that works. I like this movie. Oh, yeah. I think it's fun. I think there's there's weaknesses to the story um, and maybe some of the acting, but uh, I still love the effects and I love the whole world that's been conjured up here. I agree with that. I love everything about this. I don't think that there is a lot of weaknesses. I think that... It blows my mind that I had never seen this movie before yeah. now. And, it's fun. And if I had seen it growing up, it would probably be even more beloved to me. Yeah. I And I did see this movie a lot growing up. Uh, so it, it's it's pretty burned uh-huh, into my mind. Um, there's so many like like fun little bits to it. Uh, when Valerian goes with him into the cave, she goes, I'm not afraid. I was a man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's great. Um, and, and I like that she's, you know, She's she does things on her own, right? Like she makes a shield on her, like she she. She's is, ready to destroy the amulet without his say so. Yeah, the end. she's like, no, you're taking too long. Mm-hmm. I'll take care of it. Uh, so I think that that she's a good character. Uh, it, it is problematic. We mentioned before, like that that she was in hiding. Yeah, and and I was like, okay, well, you you freaking cheater. Um, but I mean, like it it's a it's a shitty system for you to have been a part of, but yeah, still, like you you've done you're actually worse than the princess because the princess didn't know that she wasn't a part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I feel like they could have tweaked it a little bit because, you know, she does redeem herself at the end to, you know, participate in slaying the dragon. Sure. Yeah. And she also volunteers to be considered like one of the tiles in the last lottery, Yeah, mm-hmm. which even her father was saying like, no, 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 we don't have to do that. And she's like, no, I'm, I'm a woman and I'm in this town and I should be a part of this. So it, I, I do like that she gets that mo- that brief moment, but she should have been like, well, let's see, how many equinoxes have I missed? Put in that many tiles with my name on it. And that would be fair. But then it turns out that all she's she's even not included in this lottery because this lottery is just the princess's name over and over again. Yeah. But I, I love Peter McNichol, obviously, in mm-hmm. everything that he's done, except for this. This is the only <laughs> time where I was like, I think he might have been the wrong choice. I wonder if this wouldn't have done better with somebody else in that part. And I think he was cast because he's very Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. And they they thought this could be another Star Wars. 
And yeah. it didn't really work out that way. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I, I, I honestly feel like the reason that I have a problem with him in this role is because I know him from so sure. many other things. That's mm-hmm. true. That if I didn't, I don't know if I would have a problem with him. But I'm just imagining him being this peppy, energetic, high-pitched kind of, you know, guy and like... Well, are you going to Adam's family with it? Well, Adam's family and Allie McBeal and I think I go to Allie McBeal first, which is sort of like a neurotic, like OCD well, type yeah, character. Yeah, yeah, or that. Yeah, exactly. But it's... None of those are this character, but I feel like if I didn't know those characters, I wouldn't have had a problem with this. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> if, I, if I didn't keep seeing Janosh and everything. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, no one's going to mention Janosh. <laughs> no, there's there's no way we skip over that. But um, but yeah, he he plays such eccentric characters most of the time. To have him be this sort of like a bit of a milk toast hero, I think was a weird choice. I think Eric Roberts would have been a huge improvement. And I don't know what happened that that fell apart. But um, but yeah, uh, aside from that, I and I think uh, what's her name, Caitlin Clark, that plays mm-hmm. uh, the the Valerian character is great. I think she's like you said, she has a lot of ambition and she has agency yeah. over like you know uh, her part in the story which is good um and i i love the mythology of it that you have you know this this weapons maker who builds a weapon for him uh, mm-hmm. and i i think uh they could easily have done more stories in this world after oh this. yeah and it, but this is kind of that world coming to an end though right that that's that's the only issue but then you could, you know, step take another step into. I mm. guess, yeah, it's less interesting. A uh, dragon slayer too, and it's like, but the dragon's dead. Wait, I mean, you'd have to go backwards. You'd have to have Ulrich as an apprentice. That's true. Temple of Doom. It. Mm-hmm. And just every every time they go back one generation. I, oh, <laughs> not against that. Let's do that. Let's make the Ulrich the Dragon Slayer movie right now. I mean, this is a is an IP that no one's picked up. It really it's, does. Is deserve- it because the. The poster uh, is the wrong poster on your Plex. Right? Oh, my God, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like a girl petting a CG Yeah, dragon. I was like, what, what is, is this? But, it's, yeah. but it is called, I looked that one up because I'm like, I want to know what this is from. And it, it is a show called The Last Dragon Slayer. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I wonder if it's this not, is related. It's not related to oh. this movie. Okay. There's also uh, another movie called Dragon Slayer, all one word from like 2014 or something like that that is also unrelated it takes place in fullerton in the present well he, he, here's <laughs> even the weirdest thing is that it's got the right title the wrong artwork the wrong credited director but Who's the, the correct, credited director on it uh the credited director is jamie magnus stone and i memorized it because like, that's a fantastic name yeah <laughs> but he's also a scottish filmmaker and this was all filmed in scotland um or whales i think some of it yeah uh but uh but but then the cast was correct yeah that's very weird and i was like how can the cast be correct but everything else is <laughs> i'll wrong. tell you why because this movie is forgotten yeah but it's still a gem i would say it's a thumbs up for sure for oh me. yeah yes. yeah um do we know what we're doing letterbox oh man yeah i'm ready uh, so I have it in number two. Ooh, <laughs> wow. Nice. Okay. So I think that's, you know, like, there's there's a lot of things going for this movie. I feel like, uh, yeah, it, 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 there's a couple things. I agree with you that that probably could have been better. But this is one of those movies where I'm like, I cannot believe I haven't seen this. And, and I love it upon first watching, which means that I probably would love it even more after watching it several more times. So number two out of... 
84. It's probably right not going to stay there. I mean, it's below Raiders. Um, we got a lot of good stuff coming down the Yeah, line. there's so. a lot more good stuff coming down. I anticipate it'll be knocked down a we little have, bit. We have a huge gap between our ones and our twos right now. Yeah, so. I mean, yeah. yeah, Raiders and this and, and you know, and then Scanners. But yeah. I'm like, it's, it's right up there. Yeah. Richard? Uh, I have it at number five. Um, so that puts it below Thief, but above Knight Riders. Uh, That's exactly where I had it. But then I'm like, hmm, I'm bump it up a few. Yeah. Uh, I think because Excalibur is still near and dear to my heart and Scanners and Thief uh, were somewhat newer to me. Yeah. I mean, I had seen Scanners, but like this, this is like kind of re-endeared it to yeah, me. I'm just remembering how much... I loved Thief. Well, like, that was <laughs> yeah. sitting down trouble. to watch I, that this year, I was like, "Wow, that's such a great movie." Up until about a minute ago, I had it right below Thief because mm. I'm like the only. But the only thing that's really like sticking out to me that makes Thief better than this movie is just how gorgeous that movie was shot. Yeah. yeah, it's just a beautiful movie. But like, if you sat me down, and you're like, "You get to watch one movie. You either get to watch Dragon Slayer mm. or Thief." I'm gonna pick Dragon Slayer. Of course you are. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I ag- I agree for you <laughs> that you would say that. Um, for me, <laughs> I hope you guys aren't mad. Eighty-four. No, I, I, no, I. And keep in mind that my list works differently than your guys's, and I like everything in like the top half basically. But this is in twenty-fifth, which is right next to drag, or it's it's just under Night Riders, and above Cannonball Run. So that's where I have it. It's twenty-fifth place for me. I, I actually had it under Knight Riders until a few moments ago as well because I really like Knight Riders a yeah. lot. <laughs> I think um, I think Knight Riders just edges it out in heart for me, mm. um, because the, I just love the the interactions between the characters there. Our writer director was Matthew Robbins. He wrote and directed Corvette Summer, which I also love, and Batteries Not Included. He also wrote Mimic, Crimson Peak, and most recently Pinocchio for director Guillermo del Toro. Writer Hal Barwood previously wrote The Sugarland Express uh, for Steven Spielberg because apparently Barwood and Robbins were both classmates of Spielberg and Lucas. Mm. And so uh, they, they knew each other and were aware of each other's works at the time. Barwood also wrote Corvette Summer and has an uncredited additional story credit for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He also wrote a few video games, including Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis and Fate of Atlantis Part 2, as well as Indiana Jones and the Infernal Machine, which Richard loves. I love both Fate of Atlantis and the Infernal Machine. Yeah. Also, I I love that I love Doug Lee as the voice of Indiana Jones in those games. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I've heard you mention Infernal Machine more times than any other video game, probably. (laughs) Which is weird. It was (laughs) such a forgettable game. Yeah. But I'd give anything to play it right now. The music here was from Alex North. Parts of this score came from a rejected score for Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. He also composed Carney for us last year and later Good Morning Vietnam. Over the course of his career, he's been nominated for 15 Oscars. Yeah. Losing in order to Franz Waxman, Dimitri Tiomkin, Alfred Newman, Victor Young, Ernest Gold, John Addison, Maurice Jarre, John Barry, John Barry again, Nino Rota and Carmine Coppola, John Williams, Vangelis, and Maurice Jarre again. So he was nominated 15 times and lost 15 times. Yeah. They finally gave him a gimme. Yeah, in 86. Like, and he got I'm his, sorry. Yeah, he got the the uh, uh, Scorsese Departed Oscar, which is <laughs> the, uh, the whoopsie, they call it. Um, it was an honorary Oscar to commemorate his contribution to the art. He is responsible for the scores of A Streetcar Named Desire and Death of a Salesman the same year. Viva Zapata, 
Spartacus, Cleopatra, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. So they're not small titles either. These are huge movies, but they just came up against other huge movies. He shares the number two spot for most nominations without a win with Roland Anderson, a set designer and art director, and Thomas Newman, another composer. Yeah. The number one is 16 nominations and no win. Uh, Greg P. Russell for sound design. Oh, interesting. But he, yeah, but uh, Alex North shares the number two spot. Is Thomas Newman related to Alfred Newman? Uh, I don't know that. Hmm. Cinematographer Derek Van Lint was the DP on Alien. Not a lot of other stuff, but Alien's a huge one. Yeah, and that because that movie is very well shot. Yeah. Uh, The editor was Tony Lawson, who previously cut Straw Dogs and Barry Lyndon. We saw his work last season on Bad Timing for Nicholas Rogue, and later he cuts The Witches for Nicholas Rogue. Uh, He also works a lot with Neil Jordan, uh, so like he had done The Brave One, Undine, and Byzantium. Oh, okay. Peter McNichol played Galen. This was his first film, and he's back next year for Sophie's Choice. He was John Cage on Ally McBeal. He was Gary Granger in Adam's Family Values, and Dr. Janosch Poha in Ghostbusters 2, the art restorer slash assistant to Vigo the Carpathian. <laughs> Apparently, he is quite embarrassed by this film and doesn't discuss it. Oh, really? Yeah. Caitlin Clark played Valerian. This is also her first film, and she played Simone in Crocodile Dundee, but not a lot of other credits beyond that. Ralph Richardson played Ulrich. He's back as the Supreme Being in Time Bandits later this season. He's also Alexander in Dr. Zhivago. John Hallam played Tyrion. He was Luro in Flash Gordon last season. That was the assistant of the Brian Blessed Hawkman leader. He was like second in command of the Hawkmen. He's also PC McTaggart in The Wicker Man. Later, he is Lamson in Life Force. Albert Salmi played Grail. He plays E1 in Escape from the Planet of the Apes. He's Mr. Noonan in Caddyshack last season. And we also saw him in Cloud Dancer and Brewbaker. Sidney Bromley played Hodge. He's Alf in An American Werewolf in London later this season. He's also Engiwook in The NeverEnding Story, mm-hmm. who lives near the gates of the Southern Oracle. Roger Kemp plays Horserick. We just had him last week as a spokesman in Superman 2. Ian McDiarmid was Brother Jacopus. He's Chancellor Palpatine, or Emperor Palpatine, or Senator Palpatine. You choose your flavor. <laughs> we saw him last season in The Awakening as Heston's daughter's psychiatrist, who I think she kills with a syringe or something that she finds in his desk. Oh, yeah. Uh, Alf Mangan played Erlander. He's Tequil in Star Wars A New Hope. And James Payne played another Erlander, and he's a taxi driver in An American Werewolf in London later this season, and later a NASA man in Life Force. Those are all the credits I had for this one. Oh, well, I mean, we did talk about Phil Tippett a little bit already. Oh, right. Yeah, but, I should have gone through more of his credits. But, but yeah, Phil Tippett is, is amazing. Uh, you know, he, he did. he's credited as the dragon supervisor in this, but dinosaur wrangler in Jurassic right. Park. which I think was the birth of the you had one job meme. Yeah. Because yeah. Phil Tippett was in charge of keeping the dinosaurs in check. Uh, and I think, I can't remember what the title was. He was quoted as a demon demon supervisor um but uh he's also the animation animator for the ed 209 oh in, really in he Robo does the stop Cop. motion stuff yeah and i love that animation especially when ed 209 is trying to go down the stairs and <laughs> he's so falls. he's so hesitant at first and he's like crying because he doesn't <laughs> want to do it and then when he finally tumbles down uh that's good stuff 
that's that's basically the only part of RoboCop that Jack has seen. <laughs> because we had to turn it off right away because Eddie was like, I don't like this. Was it the boardroom? Part? Yeah. Because yeah, why would you show that to them? Because it's the first scene. It's RoboCop. you got to show it to them before they're old enough to see it. I think that's everything for Dragon Slayer. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. There's a button somewhere to do that. And then you're subscribed. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing For Your Eyes Only only for you which imdb describes like so james bond is assigned to find a missing british vessel equipped with a weapons encryption device and prevent it from falling into enemy hands we leave you now with the trailer for for your eyes only for your eyes only it's roger moore as ian fleming's james bond 007 Five days ago, our spy ship was sunk in the Ionian Sea. She was equipped with ATAC. Have we begun a salvage operation? We asked Timothy Havelock to secretly locate the wreck. He and his wife were killed by Hector Gonzalez. Police were able to identify Gonzalez by Melina, Sir Havelock's daughter. Explosive. Exclusive. Well, I trust you, Elkar. For your amazement, this bond is for you. Oh, by the way, we haven't been properly introduced, Melina. My name is Bond. James Bond. Mr. Bond, you have shot your last bolt. We're not dead yet. Good afternoon, Mr. Bond. You are now flying under remote control. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I'm the Countess Lisa von Schloch. Why not come in for a bite? For your eyes only can see me through the night. This bond is for your eyes only. No one comes close to 007. When 007 comes close to you, 